hello again. It's great to be back. It's great to be here with you. I'm really excited about today's episode and the one that will follow this one as I am talking with Steve Lillywhite, legendary producer who has worked with so many incredible artists over the years. But hello, Dave Matthews Band fans. For all of you who have found this episode and are listening to this podcast and the ensuing episode, as I have a two-part extravaganza with Lily White here talking about Before These Crowded Streets, it's great to have you. And to anyone that's stumbling upon this podcast specifically to listen about Before These Crowded Streets and for Lily White's insight, I implore you, go ahead. Hit that subscribe button in iTunes, uh, rate and review. I'd love it if you could do that. And feel free to listen to some of the episodes from years past. Got some good variety there. And I will say this, in talking with Steve, it really did light a fire under me to revive the podcast and have more frequent episodes of all sorts of different kinds of conversations. But I will say this, I want to talk with more and more producers, different kinds of producers, men and women who have made some amazing albums over the years, because I think those are the people that can give you a lot of insight, uncover some certain information, and just take you right behind the console, right behind the mixing board, and let you know about the album-making process. Steve was so great with this, and uh, I am inspired to do more and more of that. So I'm certainly hoping to get this podcast feed go up and going again with, uh, with some real consistency here. As for this particular episode, this one is about... Steve's approach to the record where the band was in 1998, you know, these episodes are going up uh, in honor of the 20-year anniversary of Before These Crowded Streets, uh, and it's releasing on April 28th, 1998. So the second episode is more about looking at each song, talking about every track on the album and how it was produced, how it was written and all that stuff. This is more broad view from Lily White and talking about, frankly, why the record, which it is my favorite record of all time, why it isn't acknowledged outside the fan base and and maybe, you know, diehard musical people who understand the record-making industry intimately well. It's just not considered one of the best records of 1998, let alone one of the best records of the 1990s. Well, why is that? Because it clearly is a masterwork, and it is DMB's magnum opus, and yet it does not get a lot of mainstream love. I have a piece up at Relics.com with Relics Magazine that's a 20-year retrospective about this record as well, and uh, that's my opening thesis to that piece, kind of examining why why is this the case? Because so clearly, from a production standpoint... There's a lot of really impressive things that happen with this record. And then from a songwriting standpoint and obviously a musicianship standpoint, uh, Before These Crowded Streets is DMB at its absolute peak. So Steve was so great in giving me so much of his time here. We get into a lot of of that kind of conversation and so much more of of really just the band and and what it was like to make this album overall. He's, he's a great guy. He's really funny and has so many interesting things to say and still remembers a ton, which is impressive given that it's, uh, it's 20 years removed since they made and released this album. So enjoy this episode. And again, this is part one of a two-part uh, deal here. I know how much this record means to so many DMB fans, and really, it really is one of the most impressive records and, uh, and productions of the 90s. So here it is, part one of my chat with the one and only Steve Lillywhite. <laughs> by, by the way, I, I can't believe it's been... Two years since we last spoke, uh, I just I remember talking to you about Crash, and that was uh, that was a tremendous conversation. As just uh, I just can't believe it's been yeah. two years. I mean, just goes by in a flash. Um, but let's 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 get into this here. So you have you have listened back to the record in full, correct? 
I have listened to it two or three times. Oh, I love it. Okay. Um, and 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 each, funnily enough, each time I listen, I hear different things. That's the that's the most crazy thing about this album. It 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 really has so many layers of of production value and uh, yeah yeah I was I was I was pretty impressed with it. <laughs> that's 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 you know the typical response and the right response there because it is such an impressive record overall. Um, yeah. Let's before I eventually we're going to get into some song stuff because I've got I've got just yeah. questions about each song and I feel like uh, going into those will also evoke some some other memories. But before we get to that. I do have a general question about the the pre-recording process and actually assembly for for making before these crowded streets. Now you started you started recording in San Francisco, but before you even got to that point, Steve, I was curious when you finished Crash and after having done Under the Table and done and done Crash and both records did so well. Obviously, was there a general understanding, say mid nineteen ninety six or maybe into nineteen ninety seven, that you were just going to be the guy to do the next record, or did they come to you maybe while they were on their tour in nineteen ninety seven or management and said, "Hey, listen, the band wants to tap you again for this"? Do you remember how uh, arrangements were made for you to produce before these credits? No. I, I, I don't think it was ever really discussed. I think I, I was probably more surprised that I was asked to do Crash than I was that I was asked to do Before These Crowded Streets. Um, because, I don't know, because Crash was sort of mixed by someone else. I don't know, no, no, Under the Table and Dreaming was mixed by someone else. And I, and I got the feeling that... that, that, that um, I didn't feel so much a part of the situation. So when I did get asked to do Crash, I went, oh, great. And, but, but, you know, I think I mentioned this during the Crash interviews. I, I'm, I'm very, very aware of every album has to be different. And even though something might be a good idea production-wise, you know, if you've used it before on the previous album, you try, you try to steer away from that. Because I, I grew up with the Beatles and the Beatles took me on a musical journey in real time. And then, you know, I, I sort of learned a lot from you 2 and Bono and the idea of always changing each album with, with, with them. And, and with Dave, I thought, well, look, I'll just use these same principles. And so, so there was, you know, there was not really ever much talking about what we were doing. It was just like, oh, well, it's time to do the third album now, you know. Hmm. And um, and I, I had some very, you know, I, my, my ideas were that, you know, we had to expand, we had to get bigger. The band, it, but it was a natural thing. It wasn't like I was some sort of um, master guy pulling strings. I mean, it was a natural thing because the band were getting bigger. So it was seemed like natural that we would bring in like the the the, you know, the Kronos Quartet and... And, and, and all those people to, to, to give some extra dimension to the music. Without a doubt. Now, at this time, yeah. okay, so, and I, and I want to try and uh, stay in the zone as much as possible and not, yeah. not float too much toward the next the Lily White sessions or anything like that, but the question kind of relates to something that obviously came into play with, uh, with the fourth record. But how much input 
I guess, pre or even in the midst of recording streets, did you get from band management or the record company? Or was there a level of trust after Under the Table and Crash where you you and, and Steve Harris and the engineers and the band kind of got to do your own thing without, and maybe interference isn't the right kind of word, but just got to, basically got to do your thing in San Francisco and then New York and, and what you provided to uh, the record company afterward was, was yeah. what it was. There, there was no record company interference on the first three albums. Okay. The, uh, the only, the only interference was, I think, um, uh, other than the the, uh, the 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 mixing decisions, which I will I will go into because I'm very I'm very serious of why I think before these crowded streets is my favourite, and it's because I it was the only album of theirs that is completely my vision in terms of production because um, no one else touched that record. Uh, Under the Table and Dreaming was remixed by Tom Lord Algie, who did an okay job, but I, you know, my original mixes were, were arguably better, I think, well, which I, I would do because I was the person who did them. Um, Crash was half mixed by Tom Lord Algie and half mixed by me, but, un but, but before these crowded streets was, was, pretty much my vision all the way through there was no record company um in uh you know i mean i i think when we presented the album it was like oh well this is a bit long we need to do radio edits for mm -hmm. for the singles but you know it was um it was a natural third album i mean i remember my 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 girlfriend who then became my wife at the time uh, worked at MTV and, and she thought it was a very dense album. That was, you know, it, it, it was, it was not, you know, it didn't, other than stay, it didn't really have the, the brightness of, of a crash, you know, bit, but, but, you know, it was, it was Dave, it was Dave basically at, I think it was his, in, it was his, it was the, I don't know, when I was listening to it yesterday, I heard The Dreaming Tree and I went, oh my God, this is maybe the last song he ever wrote of a certain style. Mm. Because when he says The Dreaming Tree has died, all of his songs up to that point, for me, had almost been this sort of such an innocent place he came from. Like a little boy. These songs were written as a stream of consciousness by a little boy. And I think... Maybe I'm wrong, but when I think the dreaming tree has died, I, I think that he used a dreaming tree to write his lyrics, but it's gone now. And I think some of the lyrics on on this album, are, you know, he he reverts to 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 sex a hell of a lot, you know, um, about his what what his uh, lyrical meaning, and and that, that you know, I suppose I'm just jumping all around here, but um, feel free to. But jump. That was one of my. Well, that, that was one of my thoughts that, that maybe subconsciously, you know, the Dreaming Tree could be, in my mind, maybe the last song he wrote of a certain style of song. That's an interesting Because, you know, yeah. once you lose your innocence, you can never get it back again. That's an interesting perception. I hadn't uh, ever considered that, but you might you might have a solid case there. Um, yeah, yeah. And you, so the, the album was recorded uh, in terms of laying the tr basically most of the instruments aside from vocals and overdubs it was done uh in Sausalito at the plant outside of San Francisco oh it what? was a beautiful it's a beautiful studio we all lived in houseboats 
Okay. Um, <laughs> well, hold on. So what, what inspires that? What inspires that? Is that is that your recommendation because you had worked there before? Because the band obviously hadn't. So what actually gets you out to the West Coast and is a dramatic change of senior, scenery from having done the first yeah. time in New York? Well, I, I, I think partly it was to do with the um, – with with the, the 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 time of do you know what time of year we recorded it? I love that you're asking me this question, but I believe <laughs> I believe that you guys actually laid down the instrumental stuff. I you I gotta yeah. believe that you did this October November maybe December at the latest because then you would have had to I figure you would have had to have finished up your vocal overdubs in New York by February at the latest. So I'm okay, thinking, right? Yeah. I've got it because I I I, I remember. Maybe this is the reason, and I don't know, but it could purely be because of the weather. It's like we wanted the album out at a certain time the next year, and and Woodstock was just going to be, you know, pretty grim in October, November, and December, because I, I remember the snow uh, in in New York when we went to Electric Lady, but um, so so maybe it was purely we we decided to go to the plant, and maybe you know. Someone had said to the band, this is a great studio. You should come and check it out. And, um, <laughs> you know, as I've always said I, I can make the best. I've made I have made the best records in the worst studios and the worst records in the best studios. So it's, it, it doesn't really bother me how great a studio is. I mean, it's nice to have a great studio, but it's not the reason a record is great or not in my book. I mean, it's part of it, you know, a good sound as as such. But. But it's the spirit of a record that that is the thing that excites me more than the um, more than the you know the bass drum sound or something like that. Can you just take a, take us into this houseboat situation and what that was like? Was that actually was that just kind of like a goof around process, or was there actually some creativity and songwriting going on in these houseboats? And like, did they li- like were the houseboats like adjacent to where the recording studio was? Can you paint a picture there? Yeah. Well, the houseboats were. It was part of. The, the Sausalito has these houseboats, and I think the studio had deals with the houseboats. So it was it was part of the shtick. If you booked the, you know, if you booked the studio, you had the, you know, they gave you the option. They said, look, we have these houseboats. Rather than staying in a hotel, stay in the houseboat. So, so we all stayed in different houseboats. I think maybe a couple of the bands stayed in a hotel. I don't, I can't remember, but it was um it was great. I had you know I had just stop drinking this was my first album where i was um i was not drinking or smoking weed or doing anything like that so it was a it was it was a whole new thing for me you know uh so any any partying that went on it was sort of done i would go home to bed and think about the album and um and they would all go off uh and you know do their thing was, you know, that challenging? But, um, was that challenging for you, Steve, on a personal note, like just to have? Well, you know, how, how well, long if, if we can go this? into the, per- you know, I'm now 21 years sober, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and you know, I love being sober. It's 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 absolutely fantastic. But you know, at the time, and it's funny that my most psychedelic record was the very first one I did in my whole career that I was sober. You know, um, and because and, I used I, I used to think that, you know, if I smoked a joint, I could get the sound exact. You know, it was all this sort of um, a, a making it, you know, giving myself reasons to smoke weed, I suppose. Sure. <laughs> 
but you know, I made some great albums when I was stoned, and, I, and my main thing was like, can I get the enthusiasm for my work if I'm not, if I don't have a bottle of red wine and and a and a big bag of weed next to me, you know? And in fact, I realised that I absolutely could, and and maybe I was even better without uh, without that influence. So I, I will always say now, Sergeant Pepper's could have been a much better album. That's a little bit. That's a little bit controversial, but uh, but you know, um, yeah. So so I yeah. But so my personal side, I was a little bit quieter. You know, I was always the one as much leading the party before. Uh, and and on that album, I was I was I was very focused on 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 the vision of the you know. I mean, Dave said something like, "Oh, I want to have." Uh, I want commercials, like TV commercials. That's all he said, you know. I want to have TV commercials between the songs. And that sort of led me down this road of of this whole journey for the album that, 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 that not only had the TV commercials, but it had big sections where I just, you know, I, I would just mix out a lot of the instruments you know, like Carter, you know, like the, the on the stone when it goes into the, the string section at the end. That was all me. That was the band were playing. But I just decided to turn it into this big, beautiful orchestral outro. Hmm. So, you know, there, there's we were talking about houseboats, weren't we? That's OK. Ah. I love that you're off, that you've uh, veered off the track. That's the fun of this here. Um, <laughs> it is. It, Steve, it's, it is pretty intriguing that. Uh, that this record is as uh, dynamic and daring as it is uh, with the backdrop and the backstory of you having gotten gotten clean and done it this way. Uh, yeah. You, you kind of alluded to this notion, but I mean, it, there's really a case to be made here that, um, that it's as good as it is because of the challenge that was in front of you. And maybe you consciously or subconsciously were aware of this as you were doing it, but I wonder if there was a part of you that was thinking, you know, now that I have, you know, this band at its absolute peak, we've made some really good records, and here I am in a different state of mind with a different set of circumstances. I, I yeah. got to prove to myself and them that I can actually, I'm capable of doing this without any sort of assistance. Do you remember kind of thinking that um, heading into the session? No, well, no, I, I remember being fearful that, that I wouldn't be as enthusiastic. Hmm. But in fact, maybe it was, um, you know, the band drove me and I drove the band. It was, it was one of those, uh, it was just, you know, I, I don't believe anyone can take complete uh, 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 responsibility for anything, both success or failure. When there's a whole group of people involved, you know, everyone has their own part to do with it. So, you know, and, 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 and it was, you know, I had a great band who were at the, probably at the peak of their personal and musical coherence. Yeah, I would think it, things started to, to get, a little bit more ugly after this album but when you know the, the the big money started to come in and and there was you know there there was you know various different arguments and stuff like that but this album everyone you know everyone was enjoying the environment everyone was enjoying Sausalito in the fall um and uh and you know Kronos Quartet were living there it was quite it was quite it was quite easy. And, and, you know, I mean, we, we'll get into some specifics of, of, of what I changed up. 
Yeah. Um, but um, we will. But let me let me let me get uh, this is kind of a loaded question. But uh, but this record to me, Steve, it kind of cements DMB is one of the best bands of the 90s. But do you think it's concept? I guess it's Sonic's its ambition is like pivotal to the band's legacy. I ask because it's an interesting dichotomy to me. Because while all of that might be true, I still think it's not an album that's most emblematic of the band's sound or the sound that most people associate with DMB. And yet it's it's weird in that that's probably the case, but at the same time, it's DMB's proudest album. You almost never get that with an artist when you have those two kind of conflicting ideas land with a certain album. Yeah, well, it you know, uh, the sales-wise, I think when you look back, it is their third you know, the, the, the crash was the biggest seller, then under the table, then I think this. Certainly in that order of the first three. Um, and then record sales went down anyway, so you can't really right. compare. Um, but, uh, yes, it was, you know, I suppose, you know, if you want to put it simply, it was an album for the real fan. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't necessarily an album for someone who'd heard Crash Into Me, only or an album who'd who'd heard you know uh uh tripping billies you know it was it was it was the the it was an album for the people who dug warehouse you know it was an album for the people who who dug the deeper cuts on the other albums i dig you know and and um but, but but it was absolutely in imperative for their legacy for the you know um for them to be a you know in 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 a better breath than the spin doctors or something like that you know uh and it was you know it's i think it cemented them as a you know as both a a a, a, a pop act and a really musically challenging act you know it was um i i was just thinking when i was listening to it there's probably not since the early 70s had there been such a progressive sounding album being at number one interesting interesting point um i guess the only thing that springs to mind might be did rush ever get to one uh with moving pictures and did would you qualify maybe talking heads although that wasn't progressive it was more new wave-ish that was still yeah i think yeah talking heads was was maybe you know david byrne never sung like he sung on halloween Right. Oh, yeah. You no know, no doubt about it. I'm just thinking about like uh, popular acts that might have had records that were challenging that might have gotten to number one. Um, like even Bowie's Let's Dance, which I'm pretty sure got to number one in 83. That was like that yeah. was just a pop record. Like Bowie was an artist and had such a, a wide array. But that was not what what Let's Dance was to Bowie's catalog was not what Streets is to DMB. So that's not even. No, absolutely not. No, 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 no. I mean, what 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 Streets is much more like Station to Station or mm. something like that, maybe. Although Station to Station was more groove-based. Yeah. But um, although the, 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 I was actually quite surprised by the grooves on Before These Crowded Streets. They, you know, there was, um, you know, it's certainly, it's Carter and, and, um, and, and Stefan's best album, I think. Uh, I think there's certainly a case to be made. I think there's a case to be made in many ways that it's every member's best album in a lot of ways, and I think that's why it's got such a, a powerful uh, reputation within the fan base. Mm-hmm. But here's here's what you know. In my piece for Relics, I, I kind of hit on this when I start start off it. It's it's right. a it's an album you're supremely proud of, um, and it has such a great 
reputation among not just DMB fans, but even like I'm familiar with people that are almost dry by casual DMB fans, and they understand this is a difficult album. But musically speaking, it's a respected album, and yet, yeah, it's kind of baffling to me, Steve, that this album is still not considered, like I did my research in, in advance of this conversation and writing the piece, it's just not considered among the better albums of 1998 up there with, you know, albums from different genres across. You just will not see before these crowded streets listed among the 10 or 20 or 30 best albums of that year. It's a bit baffling to me, and I wonder if that's a little bit of a, of critical groupthink, uh, if it's just never been cool to consider what DMB does to be among um, the most accomplished or creative or, or innovative stuff overall. If Even if you want to have that opinion, and I'm kind of speaking broadly here, not to you directly. Yeah. I think before these crowded streets still stands apart from the rest of the band's catalog. And so, if there ever was an individual record that's worthy of of being included on a best of list in a given year or a given decade, Streets is that album to me. And yet, it still doesn't register that way. Why do you think that is? Because it's. I I, I think it was time to knock them back a little bit. Um, I think they they you know the first album was was a big hit breakout album and then they did exactly what most bands don't do the next album was even bigger you know very rarely have i done the second album of a band that's bigger than the first album you know october was not bigger than boy with with you too and um so you know when it came to the third album it was like well you know they don't need us to i mean i, I think it's one of those long listens you know and perhaps it had an element of of progressive rock about it that that perhaps was considered a little bit uncool. Maybe, you know, I mean, certainly progressive rock was really uncool when I started out as a punk producer. Yeah. It's funny, I, I, you know, I rode a wave of punk rock, which was completely um, rejecting a lot of the, uh, the, 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 the things that makes Before These Crowded Streets so great, you know, so it, it could have been a little bit of that. Um, but also, uh, you know, when, when Leroy died, he wasn't even mentioned at the, at the, uh, at the Grammy death roll. You know, people never really considered Dave Matthews Band as serious musical contenders, or, or no 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 serious because musically they they absolutely were were maybe because they didn't have a genre maybe you couldn't call them pop and you couldn't call them jazz and you certainly couldn't call them rock um you know what were they they were their own you know and 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 i i don't think they were a jam band yeah. because a jam band is very different dave matthews band have solos they don't jam so much you know fish are a jam band where they all fly in the same direction together i mean you know dave matthews band is basically an, an acoustic guitar and a drum solo for a hell of a lot of the time as i have said before to you i yeah. think you have i think that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a go-to comment and uh it's all good nonetheless um all right so let's get into uh I guess the uh, you know getting this album together because so much of DMB's catalog was written by Dave from '91 to '93, maybe it creeping in a little bit of '94. But the point is, when Under the Table and Crash get made, pretty much all of that, with the exception of what Crash into Me and maybe one or two other tunes, they just mm. they had road tested them, they knew them inside and out, they could play them in their sleep. And here, that's not the case. It's a new batch of songs. So, what do you remember? 
about the initial sessions in Sausalito at the plant about laying down tracks and kind of getting ideas together and how fully fleshed out some of the stuff would have been, if anything, was there a particular song that the band came in and kind of really had the groove down for, or was everything kind of uh, putting the flower on the table, rolling around the dough and really getting everything worked out in the studio? Well, that was exactly it. We, we you know, every day we came in and we, 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 Dave had his idea and we would, and the band would go in and jam it. And uh, we, we, we kept the backing tracks the same, uh, you know, it was the two acoustic guitars, bass, drums, Boyd and Roy, you know, um, pretty much. I don't think uh, keyboard player, what's his name? Um, Butch Taylor. Yeah. Butch Taylor. He came in for overdubbing, I think. But actually, the, the, the basic basic backing tracking were, was uh, the was the usual was what, what we'd done before. But um, but I already at that point had decided that, you know, under the table and dreaming, it was just acoustic guitars. Crash, what I did was I had electric acoustic guitars. I mic'd them up through amps and sometimes used them, sometimes didn't in the mixing. Um, but but on this one, I wanted to use, wanted to use Tim for what he's really brilliant at as well, his, 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 uh, his weird sounds and his electric so um yeah yeah but 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 the the basic tracks were you know were, were done as as we had always done okay. um so they weren't really experimenting they were too much we, you okay. know it just took a little bit longer because they would work them out in the studio right so but for and example we would, we would yeah. Well, for example, uh, like the one the one song that springs to mind here is the fact like this is super down the rabbit hole here and you may not even be aware of this. But so on Rapunzel, the band had played a jam similar to that groove like three years before and they only did it once or at least there was only one live recording that was captured by it. So I'm curious with the song like Rapunzel, if you can remember Dave or Carter or anyone coming in or, or Stefan and just saying, hey, listen, yeah, we've got this here. And they had the basics of that down and you were able to lay down a track like that and then it just it was a matter of Dave figuring out the vocal and the lyric around it. Well, I think probably if you listen to that jam and I'm not aware of it, but it probably wasn't in in any sort of um, form, it, it, it didn't have verse. It didn't have like a right. certain amount of verses or a certain amount of choruses. It was just this, you know, it was just a jam. So that that's what they came in. And, and maybe I said something like, uh, you know, that it needs a B section. Yeah. Yeah. It probably didn't have the B section in the jam. Did it? Uh, uh, no, I don't, pull, I don't, I do not remember you. it having that at all. No. No, no, exactly. So that's something that I would have said in the studio. Oh, my God. Um, uh, uh, yeah, that we need another section. So they would work that into it. And and actually, that's the one that's one of the songs I was listening to. I go, oh, my God, that's too long. It's got three of those of those B sections. I would only have had two of them in, I think. Um, <laughs> I disagree. I'll tell you a yes. funny side story about that. Go ahead. What, you know, not that I remember, not that I remember a hell of a lot, but I, I remember at one point during the, the, the recording of that song, the backing track, I remember, and the, 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 don't be offended by this, I remember going to the bathroom and absolutely being convinced that I thought I had worms. 
It's like I looked down at the toilet bowl after I'd finished and I thought I saw something like squirling around the toilet bowl. I went, oh, for fuck's sake, this is, you know, I must have eaten something. So I went back and I told the band and and for some reason, Dave became obsessed with this. And, and the lyric for Rapunzel was all about Steve's worms. Now, I then went to the doctor and took a pill. And um, and but I remember uh, <laughs> And, and they ne- I never saw any more. I don't know whether I was just hallucinating or something. And But I remember Leroy absolutely going, oh, my God, I'm terrible. Oh, God, I've got them as well. And, and it was, <laughs> like the whole day was um, was all based around, you know, the fact that I thought I, I saw a worm in the toilet bowl. OK. So but but uh... they, they, <laughs> there will be a version somewhere in the archives of Dave, all the lyric basically being about my worms. Interesting. Okay, so just a quick side. Just a <laughs> not quick, very interesting. At all no, no, that actually is crossing. like there are hardcores that will listen to this, and they will absolutely <laughs> need uh, they will need to listen to that version. There's no doubt about it. Um, just as a quick side question, when it comes to, when you mentioned that, just the fact that there is a version of Rapunzel out there with Dave singing about your worms. Uh, yes. Do you, when it, when it work, when it, when you finish an album, not just necessarily this album, but any, any kind of album you've done, or maybe it changes depending on the band and the record label. Do you take any of that stuff with you or get to keep any of it for your own creative purposes or references, or basically is it property of the band or the record label and anything that wasn't used, everything on the cutting floor goes into a band's vault, so to speak. Oh, I tell you, I, I do not keep anything. I have handwritten, well, I had handwritten lyrics by Dave, by Bono, by Chris Cornell, by by every single singer I've ever worked with, handwritten of huge hits that I just end up throwing away at the end of the session. Um, no, it's, 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 you know, but it's just that you, you're either the sort of person who keeps things or the sort of person who, who, is not I'm just I, I don't have the my my life has to be simple you know like the same with Dave Dave doesn't have anything I mean Dave is you know maybe he's got many things now because he's a rich man but but that's not his mo you know it's um you know the trappings are you know he's such a simple guy yeah. you know um I, I, and as I say I don't care I wish I had you know you know, literally Bono's lyrics for With or Without You. Wow. Fucking hell. You know, and, um, but, you know, hey, as I say, you either do, you're a keeper, you take photos, you always do all that stuff. And even now I don't do it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just, just something, no. And, and, and the tapes, oh, we, we had some incredibly funny outtakes, you know, so funny. Dave and Tim just, 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 oh. But maybe these things are better in memory than they are. But no, we, we were just so, we just could not stop laughing. It was just all, all the albums. It was, you know, there was so much that they will be in the archives. You know, I mean, yeah. Red Light will have all those now. And um, because nowadays you don't get that sort of thing because bands don't play all at the same time. Um, but when you have all people at the same time and the tapes rolling, you just hear these you just have funny interactions between people. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, given yeah. that this is still in the tape era, and that's just not that's not the uh, the go to so so commonly. Well, now. it's not. No, people do. You know, nowadays everything's done one at a time. 
But in those, you know, this was this was a band playing and I was the sort of captain of the ship and it was great. That's cool. Um, hey, you know what? I wasn't even going to ask this, but you just popped it in my head there. So you say that, that that's actually a lyric from a Dave song. Um, there's speculation. I don't know if you remember this or not, but there's speculation that uh, they actually wound up putting that that captain song on the record busted stuff. But do you remember yeah. if they would have laid down even just uh, threadbare tracks for that that song captain for this album or not? No, we did Captain on the Lily White sessions. Though, okay, right? okay, you didn't. Okay, so you didn't do it for this one. He because he had played yeah, well, can, it acoustically. Can we, do, can we do a Lily White sessions one? I'll do a complete oh, well, expose of that. We will. We will save that for another time. And <laughs> and I don't even think we'll wait two years. Maybe we do that in a year from now because that's I think it has the most intrigue and uh, and mystery around it. But okay. Well, it, you know, I've, I've I've never really given my my version of that story. You know. Yes. Um, well, we will uh, yeah. we will tease it and and certainly get to it. Uh, I do enjoy our our rapport here. Yeah. Um, the, one of the biggest points of creativity with this record is the fact that he came up with the idea of just you know telling you, hey, you know, Steve, I want I want TV commercials between the songs. And on a personal, yeah. I remember listening to this record for the first time and being thrown by this concept and then absolutely loving it. And then uh, I think for, a, I don't know where I got this erroneous impression, but then I thought, well, this would have been a really cool idea. I want to say for probably the first six months or so that I had this album, I actually thought that the interludes were previews of songs for DMB's next album that would come out. So it was almost right. like like maybe I misheard the concept or misread it in an, in an interview in print where I thought that Dave was saying, oh, it's like going to the movies and you get to see the previews before the movie starts. And so these interludes were actually going to be songs that were going to be on the next album. And I thought that was a freaking incredible concept that had never been done on a record before. But even if that right. wasn't even if that wasn't it, this whole idea, I, I love it because it has a way of connecting the record together and, you know, in a, in a funny way, it, the album starts and also ends with these kinds of things. Even though the last track at the very end, uh, the last stop, um, kind of yeah. comes back in the reprise and the uh, the opener, uh, Ponta Lanaga Pampa. Even though they're they're connected as kind of in different ways than the other interludes, this album is kind of it's just it's spliced and peppered with this whole idea of just these kind of quick hit thoughts. Um, yeah. Well, the, you kind oh, of go God, into that so a little funny. bit if you could. It's so funny that you make, that you say that because if that had been the case, maybe the Lily White sessions would have been released <laughs> because one of the main problems with that album was that we didn't, you know, it was like pulling teeth getting the songs. And if I'd realized, if I'd thought that, I said, if I thought just turn this into a longer song, it would be fantastic. Right. Oh shit! Now, now you've just re now twenty years later, I think I could have I could have saved my job. Uh, instead of being instead of being fired, <laughs> uh, I hate to dig up such a such a bad memory there. No, but, no, but no. I know. No, just, I know. On. We're just time, we're just kidding with know, each other. Yeah. This thing that time is a great healer, but it, uh, no, I was you know I was really hurt uh, uh, by all that. Next and, podcast, um, I know. We're saving it for it. We're saving it though. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, the, yeah. Uh, so with these interludes, my question is. Yes. Like, was it a situation where basically Dave thought up a, a couple of them were pieces of music that the band actually had in other songs, but some of them were brand new and never been played before. Like, do you remember them kind of just sitting down and like 10 minutes being like, OK, we got it. Here's 30 seconds. Let's put it in between tracks. And how did you deduce 
where to put which pieces of music because they seemed like the piece that follows Don't Drink the Water seems to fit so perfectly before Stay starts. And the and the piece yeah. that follows the, the fade out of the stone uh, is not in the same style whatsoever, but it ends on that like C7 chord, which goes perfectly right into Crush. So how did you deduce basically how to place each interlude where and not to do it after some certain tracks versus others? It was all me. This was my, you know, this was the sort of thing I, 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 I spent a lot of time uh, perceiving and conceiving. Um, in fact, all the interludes were recorded after the main tracks were done. It was like, oh, hang on. Dave had this idea to, to record the, the interludes. He'd forgotten, I think. And then, <laughs> and then I said, well, shouldn't we do the commercials now? And oh, yeah. So they went in and they, you know, it's like, well, let's do one of this style. Let's do one of that style. Then when we've got them, I, you know, I started to think where they could go. I mean, the, the, the very first one, I thought that was just, that is a great song that needs to be f- turned into a whole song. You know, and I, Pantana, whatever yeah. it's called. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, that they were recorded all at the end of the, you know, we'd done most, most of the tracking and we decided to do, then do the commercials. Um. Some of them, when you know, some songs didn't have a commercial because I think we did a couple that I didn't think were good enough. Um, so we didn't put them in everything, but uh, but you know, then I would you know I would turn something. Um, was it end of Halloween into the stone? Yes. You know there isn't there isn't one there, but it sounds like there's one because it goes into the big orchestral thing. And then it goes straight into the stone, which actually I'd forgotten is one of the great moments in recording. I mean, it floored me when, when the the and it is Halloween into the stone, isn't it? it? it, it yes, that is when the Kronos take over and it blends into the next yeah. track. Yes. Yeah, that's that's just uh, you know it, it, it's um, yeah. So there's there's that, and then at the end of the stone has an orchestra as well, doesn't it? It does, and then it fades. Yeah, we'll get to the the transition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stone I, I, is, is I wild. Um, but that's interesting to note that. Uh, so you know, Red Light probably has you know two, three, four potential just quick, quick hit demo things that just you and the band thought, eh, it's not quite good enough there. So I guess yeah. The, so it's interesting. I guess I that might be new information that we, that we didn't that we didn't use every one that we recorded. Because, right, but uh, okay. That's intriguing. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I guess the initial idea, though, was to put one in between every single song, and then you wound yeah. up not doing it. And yet the album almost flows better because of it, because I feel like the ones, like, the fact that uh, I'm almost positive that Crush goes to Dreaming Tree. There is no break in between either of them, and that's, that's like, perfect. The fact that there's, it's just Right, well, crush. that's, you know, that's, again, you know, all the gaps between songs and all the, the putting it all together like that was all done by me and it's this is you know again where i can i can claim really good responsibility that that the the this was a singular vision or the the other albums were not necessarily as singular as this one for me of those first three because as i say you know all of under the table and dreaming was mixed by tom lord algae even except for maybe one i think i can't remember but you know all of uh, uh about four songs on Crash were mixed by him. Not Crash into me, actually. I did that one. But um, so, so this was the one that I, I, from beginning to end, there was no record company uh, 
uh, interference. You know, it was just, you know, they would they would turn up and, and buy us dinner and then go, you know. <laughs> Uh, no one ever took me aside and said, Steve, it, these, this is a little bit progressive, you know, I suppose maybe cause they heard stay and they go, Oh, at least we've got that song, yes. you know, or, or crush, which is, you know, which is a great catchy chorus. Um, yeah. So yeah, th- th- there was no record company that, that really told me what to do cool. on that, on, on this album. Um, now we get the we get twenty years worth of hindsight here, um, and yeah. and and you can see how the, the the record is actually it's it's aged well, and then it, it also um, and I don't say this in any sort of detrimental way. Like under the table and crash have also aged decently well, but they are definitely when you listen to them, you like it almost transports me back to okay, these this is of a time of the nineties. Streets feels a bit more timeless to me. Like Streets could be recorded in 2018 and sound just as fresh as it was in 1998. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, I, I really would. And I honestly will put that a lot down to the fact that I I don't make records to sell. I make records for art. I, I Honestly, and I'm, I'm not being like, you know, blowing my own trumpet, but but I I, I think my best my best work is when you know i'm allowed to 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 fulfill my vision and um and certainly the artist really you, you know i i don't know um but 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 this was yeah this this was um i personally you know I, my mixes of under the table and dreaming i think at the time would you know could have been a little bit more timeless um, I don't know whether a mix can make it more or less timeless. I don't know. It, it certainly has, you know, it has a factor about it. No, I mean, mixing can can change, you know, can, you know, that, that that's one thing I learned from you too, actually, on the Joshua Tree was, you know, I, I was still in the throes of doing certain things sonically. And they, when I came in to, to, to work on the Joshua Tree, it was like, no, Steve, we want this to be timely. We don't want anything to, to, to indicate it's 1986 that this is being made. And I've, I'm, you know, I'm, all, I'm, I'm aware that you need to balance the use of technology with the, the, with the, um, with the effort to make it timeless. Yeah, that's, that's a good point there. If, if, you, if you understand. I yeah. do. I do absolutely. Um, let's let's go. Some- and maybe and what I'm saying is maybe some of these mixing guys for hire, maybe they don't think like I do. They just think you know we need to make this commercial. We need to make this a hit record. Right. And they and they you know anyway. Yeah. But no. That's- but it's also a much more difficult thing because it also has to be the right you know you got to have the right songs and you know the, yeah. the right yeah yeah the right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. No, it's, I'm like, not yeah. saying it's. it's it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's many things that yes. I'm, you know, and, and this is just one of them that I'm saying. Yeah. But yes, it's, uh, well, yeah, it, well, it, 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 you could argue it's timeless because it's the most complicated. Sure. And I, I'm not complex. even saying like, I, I, in a way, but I just also just, I don't know, a lot of, uh, of the sonic qualities of the album, um, because I also like, I had not listened to the record for, geez, it, I, 
subconsciously or consciously, even a while, like at least three years, which is a hell of a long time for me to go without listening to the record. And I listened to it all the way through, and uh, it, it still sounded. It had a modern urgency to it that I that I I guess didn't anticipate once I put it on. Um, which I thought well, that's was, great. That's fantastic. Which was, uh, which was pretty intriguing. I'm proud of it. Yes, I'm very proud of it. But 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 I never listened to it after it was finished. Yeah, why is that thinking, though? I, I but why why I is that, Steve? Even... What is it about the mentality with a lot of producers and artists that 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 are like that? Oh, I I, I absolutely have my um my theory on this, which I've said before. I'll say it again. Okay, when you're working on something, you are very active in its um in its composition, in its in its form. But when you finish, you become very passive. There's nothing you can do to change it. So uh, my argument that if you listen to it. There are only two, two things that you can do. Is you, you can either like it or dislike it. Now, if you like it, then there's the problem of maybe complacency. And if you dislike it, there's the problem of uncertainty. Now, both complacency and uncertainty are negative emotions, which I don't want to ever, if I can ever experience you know i never want to be complacent but i never want to be uncertain and those are the only two feelings i can have if i listen back to something i've done very fascinating and i can uh, does that does that make sense it, it, I does, mean, and it you, does no it does now you can you can argue that for all art for you know like do you want to watch yourself on television if you watch yourself on oh, television God, no you like absolutely it, you know? <laughs> Absolutely not. And then, I mean, this isn't about me, this interview, but just as a, as a quick point of reference and I guess uh, comparison, if I'm working on an extensive feature, like something that I've spent months reporting out and I'm slaving over the words, I will sometimes go back and read it for reference. But sometimes I'll hate when I do that because then I'll be like, I should have just cut this graph or why didn't I bump this up <laughs> or, you know, just so that that will sometimes get to me. And I'll almost it's a weird thing, though, because it's not I'm not. I'm just looking at words on a page. I'm not listening to the way I've sung or the way I look on, mm. on TV when I'm interviewing someone. But, yeah, I, I definitely identify with what you're getting at here. Yeah, yeah, the compla complacency and uncertainty. Of, uh, now, occasionally, you know, you, you, you lose your way in life and you have to sort of backtrack and follow the seeds back to the entry of the forest. And, um, and when you do that, that's what listening to old albums is. And, of course, if I hear something on the radio that I've done, it's like a gift, you know, that's that's like a present. I like that. Yeah, yeah. So if ever I sit down and listen to an album I've done, it's because I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We've made a habit of this, and I, uh, and I very much appreciate it. Okay, there you have it. Part one of the sit-down chat with Steve Lillywhite. He's a great guy, just and a really funny guy, too. There's some stuff that uh, isn't on the podcast here, um, but really made me laugh. He's got a great sense of humor about him overall. So the next podcast, we'll get into song analysis, putting the track list together, so much of the production technique, and more of uh, sort of the hardcore stuff about this record and songs that were on, songs that were kept off, and all things in between. And so uh, for the DMB fans who have stumbled by, thanks again. Be sure to rate and subscribe and uh, prepare yourself because I think you'll really like the second half of this two-part podcast. Thank you.